Zaki, welcome. I think we have our folks here. Zaki, how are you? Uh, happy to be here. Dude, we're so happy that you joined. Um, so everyone, welcome. I think we can get started. Uh, I'm going to lay the stage for the conversation and introduce our speakers. And then, uh, so just bear with me and then I'm going to shut up and, and let the dialogue just flow. We are all convening at an interesting time. Uh, shared security is one of the hottest topics of the moment right now. For those unfamiliar, at a really high level, shared security is this idea of multiple chains that inherit some security from a common source. There are different methods by which shared security can be delivered. Hence, there's just a lot of activity, consequently buzz at the forefront of this concept. So just a lot of news. Cosmos it will be introducing interchain security, uh, which we'll definitely be talking about. Uh, and Polkadot, I think, we've all seen, uh, has introduced parachains with shared security uh, of the relay chain. So the world is clearly moving in a direction uh, of shared security, for better or for worse. And thus, at the center of the movement is a growing and intensifying debate. There are proponents that disagree with the idea of shared security, claiming that it introduces security risks and trade-offs that outweigh the benefits. And on the other hand, there are staunch supporters of shared security who believe that it is necessary for chains to communicate more secure, securely in a multi-chain landscape. To help us make sense of it all, we have three of the brightest technical minds in Web3 who all have pretty strong opinions on this topic, and hence we've brought them all together. We have Mustafa, John, and Zaki. We'll real quickly go through introductions for those uh, who are joining who don't know these folks. We have Zaki Munyan, co-founder of Sommelier and Iclusion, and someone who has contributed significantly to Cosmos. We have Mustafa Al-Bassam, uh, previously co-founded Chainspace, acquired by Facebook, now Meta, and is now the co-founder and CEO of Celestia, which is quickly becoming known as the first modular blockchain network. And then we have John Adler, creator of Optimistic Rollups, previously at Consensus, and now a co-founder of Celestia and Field Labs. Gentlemen, welcome. How are we all doing? Can you guys all hear me? Are your mics good? I think we kicked John out of the speaker set. but uh... oh, Okay, let's get him back in here real quick. But uh, yeah, no, everything's real good. Uh, this is a fun topic. Um, I don't think people really realize that this is not a new topic this is basically been like the central topic of blockchain protocol design for like since like 2015 um it just seems that like the like number of people who are interested in talking about it like has suddenly exploded um uh yeah it, i feel like in many ways i think the other you know the two things that have changed since 2016 is one is like um is like these systems are much less hypothetical than they were in 2016 um at like so we have like real systems and now we have real users interacting with those real systems so we're starting to get some empirical because like a lot of this qu these questions about shared security i think are just uh are are like hypotheses around how like users and markets will form on top of blockchains um and like we're certainly not in a in an end state yet, but like we at least have like users and markets that have formed, so we can start to ask questions about that. Okay, so let's get into it, Zaki. Why don't we start off with you? Uh, there's a lot of non-technical folks here, and like I've gotten scores of DMs about uh, just the 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 overall or high arching idea of it. Can you quickly 
uh, introduce the topic of shared security further. Uh, okay, share, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try my my non my extremely non technical uh, 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 um, uh, vision explanation of uh, of shared security and see if it works, and also see if uh, Mustafa murders me um, for getting for explaining it wrong. Um, we'll see. Um, okay, so here's my here's my like central point of view is like. So, like, the whole question of blockchain security really comes down to this question of who can rug you? Like, who in the system is, is like, actually has the ability to, like, to rug you, to, like, for your money to disappear into nothing, for them to steal your funds, all, you know, for them to, like, you know. Um, and for anyone who's been, like, interest, in, in, interacting with, with the DeFi or NFT ecosystems, like you're starting to get a visceral sense of the rug, like of like what a rug feels like. It's like, oops, my money's gone, right? Um, and the basic question that shared so like in any blockchain system, there's a lot of there's a lot of Im- information asymmetries about like how and where can you get rugged. There can be a bug in the system, like the software developers um, could make a mistake in like the the, the base layers protocol. Um, you could get uh, the smart contract author um, can like either intentionally backdoor the system or have a vulnerability in the system. Um, the team can use, you know, governance tokens or a multi-sig to like, you know, screw over the project. So there's a lot of ways in which a project can get rugged. But one of the, like the central question that, uh, uh, um, that is like at the heart of, of shared security, especially as we, Sort of have transitioned into proof of, uh, uh, of, of of stake is can the validators rug you, and how many validators have to work together to rug you, um, is basically the question of shared security, and for um, the question of shared security is basically in the shared security vision, and every time people try to build shared security. What they're basically aiming for is a system in which the number of validators that have to collude to rug you on any sort of scalable blockchain system is equivalent to the number of validators you have to collude for the for the like the layer for like a, a major layer one to fail, um, like and so trying to make a scalable system in which the same groups of people have to collude to rug uh, or the same validators have to collude. Uh, to rug you and the people who are trying to build who are who have built non-shared security systems that are scalable and interoperable um, have been willing to say hey like it would be okay if part of the system fails because like this set of validators rugged like over here and it wasn't and it does and you know and like the whole system as a whole uh, continued marching along so like you know is it okay you know is it acceptable to live in a world in which like the polygon bridge operators or the uh, uh, or the polygon validator set can essentially like steal all of the funds that are bridged over the Ethereum polygon bridge. Is that an acceptable world or a completely unacceptable world? Um, And that really is the central question of like shared security. Mustafa, let's kick the ball over to you. Please share your high level thoughts and your general point of view on shared security. Yeah, I think that's a good overview. Um, 
I would contextualize it within a kind of multi-chain ecosystem. Um, so to get into more of, of the details of what shared security means in practice, um, like that's effectively, this is very applicable to systems where there's multiple blockchains that each have their own state machine. So, you know, if you look at Ethereum right now, for example, um, Ethereum, the main chain is like, it's just one chain with one state machine that executes everyone's contracts. But recently people have realized you actually have to have a multi-chain ecosystem where there's multiple blockchains because you just, you just can't scale Web3 with a single you know, state machine that processes everyone's transactions. So you effectively have to shard execution. And to shard execution or to split execution across different nodes or different chains, you basically need a multi-chain multi -chain ecosystem. Um, multi-chain ecosystems come in different forms. Um, like, you know, a few years ago, there was kind of, I guess, like two main kinds of multi-chain ecosystems. There was this Ethereum 2.0 sharding uh, back when Ethereum had ex execution shards where each shard was, was its own chain. And then you had, you know, more Cosmos-style systems where um, it's similar to sharding, except that there isn't a predefined set of shards. It's more like anyone can create a shard. And in, 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 in multi-chain ecosystems, it's important um, to have composability or interoperability between those chains. So let's say you have chain A and chain B, and let's say chain A sends funds to chain B, or our user transfers funds between those two chains. Um, if one of those chains happens to be insecure or has a validator set that can start to you know, put invalid transactions into, that, into their chain, then they can potentially steal user funds um, that have been transferred into that chain from other chains. And that kind of potentially creates a systemic risk to the ecosystem. So what shared security says is effectively, if you have, let's say two chains or three chains, how can we make it so that in order to break one of those chains, you have to break all three chains. So that's effectively um, like from a high level, what I consider shared security uh, to be in, in its kind of most basic form, I suppose. Thanks, guys. That concept of the central question is is really interesting. Zaki, do you, how how do you comment on what Mustafa just said? Do you agree with him? Are there any parts that you disagree? Build on top of it. Yeah. No. I I very much agree with Mustafa's framing. Uh, uh, I have tried that framing myself, and sometimes it seems to work for people, and some people sometimes it it doesn't. Um, I would also say that basically until Celestia came along uh, and like, so we, and you know uh, I've been following, I've been following Mustafa's work on this problem before Celestia, the company was founded. Um, the idea of a, a sick of a very scalable system of multiple chains with shared security um, was extremely hard. Um, and one of the sort of, uh, things I uh, sort of so like when, when I started working on on this problem in like 2015 um, 
I was like, you know, there were a lot of people who had basically been like, okay, I want to build a multi-chain ecosystem where, which, which has this property. Um, and, you know, this was, this, this was a central topic of conversations in the early days of Ethereum 2.0, Polkadot, um, uh, uh, Polkadot, Finity, all of these things. All were enormous amounts of effort were put into how do I build a system where you have multiple chains, but if you break one, you have to break all three. And really what was sort of different about Cosmos was that Cosmos was really about building a system in which you can break one chain and like the, the cascading failures um, are in some ways understandable and limited um, by the other parts of the architecture of the system. Um, but it's, you know, people will still definitely get hurt. Um, the, uh, and so then Celestia came along and Celestia was, okay, like, here's a system that is plausibly as scalable as Cosmos, um, but actually has, um, can actually have this property of, um, of where you can't have uh, a sort of state machine failure, um, where, the, where the interoperability layer um, basically gets broken um, and the and uh, and sort of cast and sort of cascading economic effects uh, sort of propagate out of it. I mean, we all got to see this um, very v vividly in um, in the wormhole uh, uh, hack that just happened, um, where you know the where. But it you know again, it, this is the these are the interesting pieces of trying to to describe these things. It was a smart contract flaw, not a failure of the validator set but you end up with you know 120,000 forged eth uh bridged over um by subverting the, uh, a piece of the bridge system um and then cascading economic disruption sort of emerging from that and like saved only because you know a a, a single investor jump was willing to step in uh and like mitigate the loss of funds right um, this is the kind of economic disaster that shared security proponents um, uh, envision happening in a world of interoperable non-shared security blockchains, where you have these like essentially economic crises that emerge when uh, when there is when a single bridge or a single blockchain fails, um, and the dream of shared security is a very scalable infrastructure in which those kinds of attacks are sort of mitigated. John, welcome back. Uh, can you guys hear me? Yeah, we can. So we were right. discussing uh, our point of views on shared security and the central question that underpins it. Uh, how do you see shared security? What's your point of view and what do you think is the underlying question? Yeah, so I generally agree with what most have said, to, to no surprise. Uh, I did want to point out a few interesting things. Uh, one of them is that while it may be true that, for instance, the wormhole hack wasn't the result of a failure in the you know, validator set, if, if you want to call it that, of, the, you know, of, uh, of Solana, for example, uh, and it's pretty rare to see cases of blockchain to blockchain bridges that are compromised due to validator sets being compromised as opposed to smart contract bugs. 
there are many cases of blockchain to centralized exchange bridges, if you want to call them that, being compromised by a compromise in the blockchain's either validator set or miner set. Uh, Ethereum Classic is a pretty big one from the past few years. I think they had maybe three or four, you know, very large reorgs. And from the perspective of the bridge, the fact that the other side of the bridge is a centralized exchange instead of another blockchain is essentially irrelevant. It's, it's an implementation detail. This is like a very clear example that block producers of a blockchain can and will attack a bridge if it's not trust minimized. It happened with Ethereum Classic and it will happen eventually in proof of stake chains if it hasn't happened already on some smaller chains. And we should see I, it only happen in, in larger chains. I've been waiting for this to happen for so many years. I'm very excited to see it happen. Uh, as far as I know, it hasn't. I have tried to pay people during game stakes and game zones to do these attacks, but uh, uh, to no avail. Uh, but I, I, I look forward to them happening. Um, so I think like the more likely scenario of this happening I, 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 more likely than the validator set fading or like being acting purposefully, purposefully, sorry, purposefully malicious. Uh, I think the more likely scenario where this might happen is more in a network upgrade that the community is not agreed on. Um, so like, let's say, for example, there's some popular chain and I don't know, let's say like a terrorist group uses the chain. Um, the community might advocate for locking or freezing or potentially um, reassigning the funds in that chain. And um, that would require a hard fork that would because that would, that, would potentially, that would potentially violate the stage position function of that chain. And so effectively, uh, but because the bridge itself doesn't actually ver verify the state transition function, it will just follow what, what the validators say. So if the validators use the hard fork, they will do so, um, even if it's like a potentially controversial network upgrade. So I think like long term or even short term, that is more likely the kind of attack or failure scenario. Effectively, a network upgrade that like the most of the community might not agree on, but the validators have been compelled to do, let's say by, I don't know, law enforcement, for example, or, or other parties. Zaki, can you please comment on what Mustafa just said? I think what he said was interesting, but curious how you see it. I definitely um, think of this as stuff that I'm like somewhat excited to see starting to play out in the real world. Um, like you will definitely, I, you know, I'm very like, I'm very excited for the world in which, uh, uh, a cosmos chain, like one, of, like one of the biggest questions I think, um, or, okay. So there, there are a bunch of layers to this question that this makes me think of. Um, one is we still don't really know what a controversial fork looks like on top of a chain that has, has like a significant amount of DeFi on it. Um, because 
DeFi has resulted in a world in which there's a lot more like infrastructure players, including stablecoin issuers and um, and like oracles and all of these other places that are like um, sort of big parts of this question of like how does a fork happen? How would an invalid state transition be be processed? How would it be be, be viewed? How would I get controversial hard fork? Um, we I, we have yet to see a controversial hard fork on top of a chain that has DeFi on top of it. So there's like a certain amount of like sort of ma- like mega unknowns um, about this. And I think this is a little bit of a why um, why Celestia may is like such an important con- contributor in this world where like I also think Cosmos IBC like the Cosmos interop model has a lot of virtues, um, which is it may be that like the risk of a controversial hard fork to an ecosystem with DeFi on top of it is so great that it's like intolerable um, to not have like further assurance that an invalid state transition won't happen. Um, We're talking a lot about Celestia real quickly. Mustafa, can, for the, I'm seeing a lot of chatter on Twitter. Uh, some folks don't know about Celestia. Can you quickly uh, introduce Celestia and tell us about it? So Celestia is what is described as a kind of well the first modular blockchain network, but what it is, what the core product is is a pluggable data availability layer. So you can think of Celestia as basically a very simple blockchain or a very simple layer one that only does the core things that a layer one should do, and those things are number one, um, ordering messages, and number two making the data of those messages available. And if you have those two core primitives, um, those, are the two core, those are the two core primitives required to have shared security across two, across two different chains. Um, as long as those chains are using the same data availability layer, then they can benefit from shared security. Awesome. Um... Going back to what Zaki said about mega unknowns, Mustafa, John, any comments on this? Do you guys see any mega unknowns as it relates uh, in the context of shared security? What do, what, what, does it, what do we mean by mega unknowns? That if we play this out from the near term to the long term, any variables that you think could derail the shared security vision So I think um, like there's two kind of there's two different narratives for shared security or, or why shared security is needed, and more generally why rollups are needed. And so like recently, like the Ethereum narrative for why rollups are needed is security uh, or shared security uh, in the sense that you need you like you should use rollup. Even though a rollup is even rollups are actually quite expensive on Ethereum, because Ethereum data is quite expensive. Um, you know, like if you use it, like it's still like a few like a few dollars per transaction if you use a rollup. Um, depending on what rollup you use, you should still use a rollup because it's more secure, uh, because it's, it's got a trust minimized bridge to Ethereum, as opposed to using some other chain like I don't know like Polygon or Avalanche that supports EVM. And having one cent transactions, 
so the risk I see there is that like in practice, users don't actually care that much about the trust minimization of the bridge. They care mostly about transaction fees, except especially when the transaction fees on different chains are 100x cheaper, um, then it's almost a no-brainer for users to take that risk of the bridge fading because they're getting 100x cheaper transaction fees. I think like if we really want to kind of have a shared security um, kind of ecosystem, uh, the actual narrative we should be pushing is that you should use rollups because um, it's easier to deploy new blockchains as rollups than deploying your own blockchain with its own validator set. And um, deploying your own blockchain for your own application is better benefits than just using a smart contract on the same blockchain as everyone else. So like, for example, in the future, I could see potentially like gaming, like, like you know, like app-specific app app blockchains or app-specific rollups for let's say like some DeFi game or some NFT game might have its own rollup uh, and does all the execution there specifically for, for that game because the game doesn't really need to compose that much with other smart contracts. I think that's more of a, I think the usability narrative um, is like is more likely to win than than a shared security narrative, given that users mainly care about yeah cheaper transaction fees. Zaki, so, after, you, that, I'm, go for sorry? it. Sorry, go for it, Zaki. Okay, yeah, I wanted to. I, so there's a really interesting question here, and the question is is does do rollups are rollups a useful tool primarily to users? Or are rollups a useful tool primarily to developers? Um, and I think this is represents like sort of the interesting question here. And I think like we're at currently an inf a, a very interesting moment in this in this history and story. Um, when you build, um, what, so you know the initial sort of generation of rollups that sort of started to get deployed this year. Um, they were all targeting the EVM as their as their um, as their virtual machine, um, and sort of implicit in the idea of I'm targeting the EVM is very much uh, I'm targeting users and not developers um, uh, or users in the broadest sense, like smart contracts and DApps and stuff like that. But I'm certainly not targeting like anyone who wants to build a custom. Uh, uh, a custom blockchain or, you know, the Cosmos SDK style of, of, of application specific blockchains. And like, you know, we built the Cosmos SDK um, with this in mind where we're like, Hey, like we think that there is a substantial number of developers who will want to build their own blockchain at some point. Um, and the, and there needs to be a toolkit for them. And so we built a toolkit for them. Um, but, Right now, there in so now there's a question of, okay, is that? I think one of the big questions that we're just starting to see the glimpses of the potential of, is like a Cosmos SDK kind of thing for rollups. Um, and now that Canon has been like open sourced, which is um, Optimism's sort of next generation MIPS based, which is like a sort of general microprocessor targeted environment you, you've started to see like the first base layer of what could become the cosmos sdk uh, for for blockchains um and arbitrum when nitro comes out is another alternative um 
which is WebAssembly based for building a Cosmos SDK um, uh, for rollups. Um, and more of as more stuff in the zero knowledge world where, uh, uh, gets open sourced, we're going to start seeing the capacity to build a, a Cosmos SDK for rollups. And I think that possibility, that 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 evolution to me seems as significant as when we were developing the Cosmos SDK back in like 2018. Let's talk about Cosmos Hub Interchain staking model. How does that compare to Celestia's model of shared security? Mustafa, Zaki, whoever wants to go first, please. Um, I mean, I think Zaki and I agree on this, but we've discussed it before. But I, like the interchain staking module, uh, I see the interchain staking module and Celestia shared security model having different purposes. Um, so I guess to recap the Cosmos Hub interchange staking module, the way it effectively works right now, or at least it works, the way it works in the V1, is that you can set up a chain where the validators of the Cosmos Hub are also the validators of your chain. So effectively, you know, the Cosmos Hub validators are also validating other chains. So they're validating multiple chains, and, and they're also executing the transactions in those chains and processing the transactions. So this is quite similar to, to some extent to the Polkadot uh, shared security model, where there's parachains and the relay chain takes an interest in the validity of those parachains. And um, so the, the problem with this model is that it doesn't scale to, let's say, like thousands or millions of chains. It, it scales to like an order of magnitude of maybe like 100 chains, uh, which is like, you know, Polkadot has, you know, it has to auction off um, like parachain slots. There's like hundreds of parachain slots and they have to auction it off. Because obviously the, the validators in the relay chain can't validate you know, every single chain in the world. Now, with Celestia, like our aim is like, we see a world with millions of blockchains. So we're kind of catering towards the kind of tail end of blockchains. Like imagine you can just deploy a blockchain. Uh, like maybe you want to, maybe you're a small, small project and recruiting the Cosmos Hub validator set is too expensive for you. Um, then you can just like, you know, de deploy it on Celestia and use Celestia as data availability layer. The, the, the advantage of that is um, like, I, I mean, one interesting part of that is like if your rollup does not initially have a lot of activity, then it's not as if you have to post blocks on that chain, like every single epoch. So you can just post blocks as long as you need to. So it's like you pay as you go data availability and ordering. And um, something that I echo with Zaki, what Zaki has said before, uh, I think the interchain staking module um, is kind of useful for like uh, as a value accrual me mechanism for the Atom token. So like let's say the Cosmos hub um, wanted to kind of like acquire or deploy new chains that are like uh, in the same vertical as the Cosmos hub. So for example, in the future, I see like a world a potential potential where the Cosmos hub might want to deploy or launch its own settlement layer for rollups. And like using Cosm, like using Cosm Wasm, for example. You know, and a community might decide they don't want to actually, you know, deploy, like actually integrate Cosm Wasm to the hub itself. So like they might deploy a Cosm Wasm specific hub, and then there's two chains in parallel, but they're interchanging stick with each other. 
So it's kind of like a way for the hub to have a suite of chains. Zaki, same question so, to you, please. Well, I agree with everything Mustafa has just said. Um, and I think the I think the the biggest way of thinking about it is is it's like um, Cosmos shared security is a sort of expensive solution to the deployer of a chain that hopefully gets them a business benefit, which is like this tight partnership with atom holders, a value, a, like a solid value accrual mechanism for this like tight partnership with between this like new chain and atom holders. Um, and hopefully this gets, is, is an opportunity to create value and it coexists in an ecosystem where, you know, uh, you can, you know, start a validator set with three machines on AWS and just go from that. Um, like, you know, the Cosmos net model is permissionless in Iraq. Um, and so shared security is this like very specific point solution. Um, I think one of the other things that is sort of worth sort of exploring a little bit more is, or like, is that like my expectation over the next few years is like, there's going to be like the Celestium SDK or I, I don't know what, how we're going to brand this, but there's going to be this like roll up SDK, um, that emerges out of the atomic components of um, of some of the like zero knowledge of like the zero knowledge proof work and the uh, uh, MIPS work on Canon and the Wasm work on uh, Arbitrum Nitro and there's going to be this like emergence of a new developer toolkit um, and my expectation is is that there is going to be sort of parallel optimization of both the like cosmos and cosmos like stack of like next generation uh uh uh, uh interoperable blockchains um and parallel optimization to the um modular architecture change where both the celestia base layer becomes much like evolves in a much more scalable direction but also these sdks for building like fraud provable state machines or validity provable state machines um, start to proliferate. Um, and I expect these things to like happen in parallel for quite some time. Interesting forecasting. Mustafa, do you also see the same, do you also expect the same as what Zaki is alluding to, or do you see it differently? Yeah, I mean, this idea of um, optimistic roll-ups that can do fraud proofs on any arbitrary computation um, is really powerful. And the idea of interactive verification games in general, that you can deploy, you can potentially deploy any kind of computer program you like, um, you know, to MIPS if we're using the Canon example, um, and you can fraud proof that. Um, and that's that's like a that's a very like you know, this will take a little, this will take time some time to fully mature. Uh, but this is very powerful because it means that it's so like one thing I want to try and figure out how to do is like deploy like you know deploy Cosmos SDK zones, for example, using Canon's um, you know MIPS fraud proofing system. So I've already managed to compile you know a Cosmos SDK app to MIPS, um, but there's still modifications that have to be made 
yeah, to get the oracle working. But the idea is if we can actually uh, deploy a Cosmos SDK zone, which is the, the, the Go, you know, the Go code into MIPS, and you can fraud proof that, um, then that's very powerful because you can actually, anyone can, will be able to deploy a Cosmos SDK zone and instantly have a trust minimized bridge with a settlement layer, you know, like Sevmos or Ethereum, for example, without having to worry about creating their own validator set. Thanks. Let's talk about data availability. The question to both of you, why is data availability essential to shared security? Zaki, why don't we start with you? So, um, the um, sort of root of the, of the data availability question comes in, which is, um, if you build a system which is only secure, so so there are a couple of things in which uh, data availability is like designed to solve the problem for you. So what's what's cause what's what I I typically like to explain this in terms of like the optimistic rollup model and the um and the the optimistic rollup model and the um uh well and the um so. And the and the sort of validium zero knowledge zk rollup model, but like one of the most important things about um, uh, uh, about these um, systems is who can propose a block and who can verify the state. Um, so, in a, in a in an optimistic rollup model, you need to have both a broad set of people who can. Uh, 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 you need to have a, as broad a set of people who can um, uh, you can who can uh, propose a who can verify the state um, because you are you need people to detect if there is an invalid state transition and then in play the interactive verification game um, and then the second in uh, 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 the zero knowledge world the zero knowledge proof provides. Pr uh, proof that like every state transition is valid but you need data availability to enable other people to propose blocks um otherwise you have like a you end up in a situation where a single centralized party can censor so really the the core properties of a of a blockchain censorship resistance um and uh, uh, uh auditability are like entirely dependent on this actual property, which is data availability. If you want to operate in like this sort of hyperscaled million blockchain world, um, and that's why data availability is like the fundamental problem of blockchains. Go for it, Mustafa. Yeah, so I mean, it's an interesting question because, like, it sounds very counterintuitive um, that data availability is like the core primitive that blockchain provides. Like we've seen, like you know, tweets from Ava, you know, and like uh, on their team saying that uh, you know data availability is just some random problem. It's like they don't understand. They don't understand why it's even relevant in the first place. Um, so it's very counterintuitive to understand why if you're be if if you've been looking at blockchains in the old model uh, that has where Bitcoin has that Bitcoin has introduced, um, where consensus and execution are coupled together. Uh, effectively, 
but where where you have a model where consensus where the consensus nodes don't execute your transaction, then it be, starts to become clear why you know data availability is important. Um, so like the, like before Celestia was you know, created or before it was called Celestia, it was originally called Lazy Ledger, and the reason why it was called Lazy Ledger was because I was trying to figure out like what is the most minimal minimum viable like blockchain you can make. Um, or in other words, what is the least what is the least amount of work that a consensus node could do for that chain, and how much like if you if you look at an extreme, like how much you know computation and work could you actually push to the end user like clients, and make it so that the consensus nodes don't have to do it themselves. And, and the conclusion that I came to was, if you wanted to take this to an extreme. You basically, like, let's say you wanted to build a, a version of Bitcoin, you know, with this, you would basically just need a chain um, where you can dump arbitrary data on it, and every single transaction is allowed. So imagine a version of Bitcoin, for example, where invalid transactions are allowed to be posted on chain. Like, you can steal people's money on chain. Uh, like, how would that be secure? It would still be secure because you just insert a, 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 a rule on the user's nodes to say, we will simply ignore invalid transactions that have been posted on the chain. And in the case, let's say like there's two transactions that are trying to do a double spend. And there's two transactions are trying to spend the same coins. And then obviously you just ignore the second one. But in order to know which one came first, uh, like if you have two conflicting transactions, like in order to know which one came first, not only do you need ordering over the transactions, you also need data availability. Because obviously you need to know, you know the complete set of transactions that have ever been posted in order to know which one has, is the first transaction with a specific property. Like for example, which is the first transaction that spent this CTXO? So this is kind of intuitively why, if you look at it from first principles, why data availability is kind of a core primitive of, of, of blockchains. And this isn't anything new, by the way. Like even back in 2014, before Ethereum, you know, Bitcoin developers were kind of arguing about this and discussing this. And we have one developer, there's a, there's a mailing list post where you know, Peter Todd argues with Gregory Maxwell um, about what a blockchain fundamentally is. And, and Peter Todd was the first person to realize that you know, a blockchain is fundamentally a data availability layer. Uh, and he refers to it as a proof of publication system. Effectively, you're proving this to people that you've published data. I want to pull on the, the rope of data availability more. Zaki, back to you. Any other strong opinions on data availability? Tell us more about how you see its role. Okay, so two things that are worth mentioning. So one of the things that I think is um, uh, most sort of um, most sort of uh, 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 underappreciated about Nakamoto consensus in proof of work um, is that it actually has like really strong, it economically incentivizes publishing blocks as long as the concentration of mining power is below the like selfish mining is profitable limit. Um, and so like, one of the things that I think that Satoshi really got um, at some fundamental level 
in designing like the original Bitcoin consensus is that I needed to provide it economic incentives um, where the where because if you if you basically like mine a bunch of blocks um, but don't publish them widely um, you the likelihood of people building on top of those blocks is low and you never get the block rewards for those blocks those block rewards are in you know are on invalid for, are not on the longest fork until you lose your block reward so you know you create this like in economic incentive system for miners to push their blocks out to the rest of the mining pool to other mining pools and to make their blocks available at the lowest possible latency to the point where now we have like the fiber network and the bitcoin network almost never forks because you know there's both infrastructure and economic incentives for miners to make their blocks available uh like super fast and super efficiently um and i think it is like one of the things that like in you know pre-blockchain like bft research like just like did not understand this problem did not understand why it was important to solve it and like failed to produce a solution to these uh things um and satoshi sort of somehow intuited um that there was this like missing idea in in like sort of open network public consensus which was like you must publish your data otherwise you lose money um which i think has been uh is sort of like the deeper insight that like is frequently lost on um, sort of classical BFT researchers. Um, so that's, uh, that's, that's one digression into the, I think the other thing that is, um, is, is sort of important to understand is that like the limit of computation that we all current, that we experience is, is that like, so like most people who are like thinking about computers and stuff like that, like are used to limitations on their computers. Like um, how many cores does my computer have? Um, how fast is the CPU? But really what is our limitation on like how many transactions a blockchain can, can process um, is the IO bounds. Like how much memory does it read? How much memory does it write? Um, how much uh, uh, disk does it read? How much disk does it write? This comes down, you know, you frequently hear about this in the context of like Ethereum scaling, that even if we made Ethereum consensus super fast, we would still have this limit of, of IO. And by decoupling data availability from, uh, 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 from, the, from, the, from this process, where you're publishing and, and uh, uh, making transactions available, but not actually running the IO that is required um, to uh, uh, to process the transaction. This is the only plausible way in which, like, we can truly achieve like the sort of like we are going to produce petabytes of block space. We're only the we're like only a minority of the node operators for any given state transition. Any given blockchain are actually processing those transactions because they care about it. But the underlying transaction data is available to the entire world. That's like how we get. It's like the only plausible path to like petabytes of secure block space as a strategy. Mustafa, can we get your thoughts on the two points that Zaki just made? Yeah, I, I generally agree. Um, in general, I think, you know, Bitcoin got a lot of things right that you know, previous academic research has, hasn't kind of realized. And in general, I find that, um, like a traditional distributed systems researcher often kind of 
there's a lot of there's a lot lost on lost on them uh, when they look at blockchains because it's a completely different model, and they often they try to apply you know, they often try to apply traditional distributed systems um, concepts on blockchains, which most of the time works and is necessary, but sometimes um, it does not work mainly for the main reason like traditional distributed systems uh, have a kind of state machine replication model. Where they assume an honest, major- honest majority assumption for for the correctness of the state. So, like traditional BFD systems, they just assume like you know, two thirds of the operators or the validators in the in the BFD consensus, you know, are you know being honest. Uh, but actually, the, the the threat model for Bitcoin is much more harsh than that. Uh, you know, the, the the Bitcoin threat model does not assume that the miners are honest uh, because it assumes that you know users are running full nodes. Or there should be like clients that support fraud proofs, which is which is um, referred to alerts in the original Bitcoin white paper. Let's transition. I received a significant amount of questions around IBC. Um, question to you both: What role do you see IBC playing in a multi multi chain world? And general thoughts uh, about. IBC and and, the, and and as it relates to shared security. Zaki, why don't we start with you? So I think it's important to sort of always like to recognize, okay, so there is, um, there's IBC as it exists as a concrete piece of, uh, 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 um, 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 uh, uh, um, IBC exists as a concrete piece of software. Um, uh, 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 um, uh, I, IBC exists as a, sorry, I got distracted. Um, IBC uh, exists as a concrete piece of software, which is, you know, a Tendermint-like client, a set of application protocols that live on top of it. Um, and this is the, uh, this like mutually communicating Tendermint-like client world. Now, IBC is a framework in which you can build lots of stuff on top of it. And so, you know, you could build a version of IBC that like has data availability proofs in it um, and a challenge period or requires a validity proof. Um, these are all the, uh, um, these are all the, the uh, sort of underlying, these are the underlying elements of a, um, of a, um, of a, a, a like these things can be included into the IBC model. Um, so I think it's going to be, it sort of represents like an interesting question as to like which direction IBC evolves. Does it stay out of sort of these like state machine verification components or does the technology of rollups start to actually start migrating into the IBC world? Yeah, so I'll, to add to that, um... Like we have been looking at, you know, adding fraud proofs um, or or zk proofs to IBC before. So where this becomes relevant is, um, like okay, so like first of all, it's a common misconception that rollups must post fraud proofs or zk proofs on chain. Um, that's only if like you've got an enshrined bridge, like Ethereum rollups work like works work that way because Ethereum rollups have an enshrined bridge between the rollup and the and the Ethereum chain. Um 
and they just like post it to the Ethereum main chain because they implement a light client for that rollout as a smart contract in Solidity. Um, but there's different ways you can do that. Like instead of posting the fraud proof to some chain, you can actually just distribute it on the peer-to-peer -peer network, assuming that the chain you're bridging to has already embedded the light client for your rollout, like natively as part of its as part of its code. And so this is kind of like more in line with how IBC works. So like with IBC, um, it supports different types of light clients. You know, so like there's a cellular machine, for example, or you know, there's a multi, you know, multi-sig or like multi-validator type um, validation like, like light client. But you could potentially introduce a new type of light client to IBC specifically for your rollup or for a rollup that in addition to checking that you know, your rollup chain has the correct signatures by the correct operators, it also listens out for fraud proofs for your chain. But it listens out for, your, for the fraud proofs on the PHP layer. Um, so like, think of Mina, for example. Like Mina is a blockchain that has a ZK proof for all of its blocks. But where does the ZK proof get posted? You know, it doesn't get posted to on-chain like a roll-up. It just gets distributed on the PHP layer. Um, and you can do the exact same thing with fault proofs. Uh, it's, 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 you know, it's easy with single round fault proofs, but it gets a bit more complicated with um, you know, interactive, interactive fault proofs. Uh, but it's still, you know, it's still theoretically possible. And there's, you know, I know of researchers um, have schemes for it. So we're going to transition to audience Q&A here very shortly. But before we do, um, Zaki, just summarize the trade-offs and your higher-level high message for the audience on, on shared security. Is there anything you want to leave us with before we go into Q&A? Okay, so there, there's one thing I would say that I, is, a, is, a, is, is a meaningful trade-off, which is all of these like fraud and validity provable state machines that, um, that um, and like all of the machinery around verifying them and generating them uh, and performing computations inside of them are all like, extremely new, extremely cutting edge, extremely exciting computer science. Um, but on the other hand, we have Tendermint, which exists. Um, and like generally the, the space of like blockchain BFT consensus, um, which is, um, and so one thing that I think sometimes gets a little bit lost in the conversation is that like the non-shared security model has the advantage of using fairly mature technology um, as its underlying like interop layer um, that has like been developed over the last like seven years. Um, whereas all of this stuff that is enabling shared security is very much so like it's interesting that I sometimes like I sometimes see like the perception that like shared security is safer now um, on the current software that's running on. Um, than, you know, IBC is now. Um, and I think the theoretical limit of safety of, of shared security is much safer than IBC. Um, but the, uh, the, and the sort of, you know, permit like client model, but the like actual practical applied security of these systems is in favor of the IBC model today, but it won't be, it presumably won't be like, you know, 
at some point when these when these like fraud when these like fraud provable state machines are like fully mature. And before Q and A, Mustafa, please leave us with your sort of final take on shared on shared security and 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 your stance. Yeah, I I don't disagree with that. Um, I come for I come to shared security. Like my like to me the. The best use case of shared security is not so much trust minimization in bridges or trust minimized bridges, even though that's actually very you know very important. Uh, to me, it's about you know the ease of deploying your own blockchain. Um, like it's easier to deploy your own blockchain as a rollup because you don't have to worry about having your own validator set than as opposed to having to bootstrap a, you know a secure and decentralized validator set. Um, and so that's why I kind of that's why I'm not opposed to you know I agree with Zaki that um, you know I'm not I'm not a shed, I'm not a trust minimized bridge maximalist. Um, I think like people should do whatever is reasonable for their use case, and whatever is the easiest way for them to deploy their own blockchain, as long as that chain has you know uh, the threshold of security that they require. Okay. So I think we had a pretty good discussion and it's time to go into Q&A with the audience. We're, we've been roughly going for an hour. Uh, let's field some questions. I've been seeing things on Twitter. Um, so please raise your hands, but I'll start off with one question that uh, we got uh, a decent amount of likes on. Uh, many, and here's the question, many applications on Ethereum, such as Maker and Compound already trust governance tokens for safety. They might as well use them for consensus too. Scoping governance token permissions is a similar problem to designing application-specific chains. Opinion? What's your guys' take? Um, I guess like there's several things I would take of that. Um, yeah, I mean that could potentially make this make sense for Compound. Like maybe they have decided. Like anyway, they could very well decide that um, they have a sufficient decentralized. They have a sufficient distribution among their governance tokens uh, that it could, you know, be a validator network. Um, although I don't think that's likely because I think, if I remember correctly, 50% uh, of those governance tokens are owned by two or three uh, entities, um, one of which being is being um, A16Z or other entities. Or, or I might be getting that mixed up with, with Maker. Uh, but that's, that, that's, you know, that's my free collection. Um, but the point that I'm making here is what, it, what the token distribution for governance token is not necessarily the ideal token distribution for validator set or staking distribution. Um, that's the first thing I would say. Um, so like it might, like that might be appropriate for compound, but it might not necessarily be appropriate for, for all chains. And the second thing I would say is um, not, all, like not all applications might be in favor of on-chain governance and even if they are in favor of in favor of on-chain governance, they might not be in favor of on-chain governance to arbitrarily change the state machine or code of that smart contract. Uh, like they might they might only be for off-chain on-chain governance for changing specific parameters of that protocol, not necessarily for changing the entire state machine or transition function for that protocol. Uh, and the last thing I would say is. Like uh, like my vision for you know blockchains in general is I see blockchains as you know like 
sovereign communities or more generally uh, social coordination platforms. Um, so like, let's say like to me, the most powerful thing about blockchain is, you know, if a group of people wanted to organize something and was, wanted to get together for a common purpose, you know, they could create a DAO, for example, um, on Ethereum. They could, you know, they could choose to create a DAO on Ethereum. Uh, but like creating a DAO on Ethereum is kind of like you know, incorporating a company in a specific country. Uh, like by creating a DAO on Ethereum, you're incorporating an entity like in Ethereum. And so you're bound effectively uh, by the social contract of Ethereum. And you know, let's say like your DAO gets hacked, then you have to convince Ethereum to hard fork. Or let's say like, or another case might be like Ethereum might hard fork to introduce uh, EVM opcodes or resource pricing that makes your that's unfavorable to your DAO or application. Uh, so like the, 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 in, for the future model for blockchains I see is where each application gets its own chain. Um, so, and like each chain is a community of people that have you know, shared you know, interest or shared beliefs. And in that model, I see hard forks as a feature. Like hard forks are effectively a social recourse mechanism. Uh, the, smaller a like, the smaller a chain is, or the smaller, like less applications that a chain serves, the more likely the community of that chain to, is to agree with each other on upgrades and changes. And so you can kind of have like a community a chain um, or like use your chain as a social coordination platform to implement the decisions made by, by your community. And you might not want to use, you know, um, like whoever owns the most tokens as your governance mechanism. And I think that's like one of the things that's the most powerful about uh, this like multi-chain application specific, you know, blockchain paradigm. Zaki, we'll kick it over to you. Before you speak, folks, uh, we are fielding questions here. So if anyone want, does want to ask a question, uh, you know, please do raise your hand. Um, Zaki, go for it. I know Mustafa just dropped a lot uh, for us. Please comment. I mean, I don't know what to do with it other than how like joyous it is when you hear Mustafa or anyone else just like recite the Cosmos thesis back to you um, five years later. You know, it's... Uh, like this is this like block like I think there is this enormous like logic towards application specific blockchains, um, and I think that there is um, there are always going to be sort of mega application blockchains that are in some senses going to be application specific. They may be centered around a particular set of like DeFi primitives. Um, or like a particular DAO or something like that. There will always be big blockchains in this world, but I, I've always, I, I really fundamentally believe um, that enabling this like power law distribution of blockchains um, where there are small, super secure community settlement engines um, is, is the mission of this space. And so, uh, you know, and I think Celestia is, you know, there are a lot of like specific software development things, but like Celestia is fundamentally an enormous step forward in the very long-term vision of Cosmos. Um, and, you know, we have, Cosmos is a very long game um, that, uh, that like is, has made enormous strides forwards this year. Um, and it is, it is really exciting to see like, you know, 37, interoperating cosmos chains like live in the world 
Um, and I expect that to be in the hundreds or the thousands. Um, and then someday we want to be able to go to the millions. And that is the infrastructure that Celestia is building. We got a pretty specific question, I think, from Ansem. What is the difference in the security of bridges from L1 to L1, L1 to L2, L1 to sidechains versus IBC and how, versus IBC? And how significant are the trade-offs there? Mustafa, thoughts? Um, yeah, so like I have a blog post about this called Clusters that kind of categorizes bridges into two types. Um, trust, what I call trust-minimized bridges and what I call committee-based bridges. Um, like uh, the bridge uh, between the between the L1 and the roll-up um, is considered to be a trust-minimized bridge. And what that means is that even if the roll-up operator misbehaves, the roll-up operator cannot steal the funds. Um, on the other hand, you know, a bridge between the L1 and a side chain is very similar to a bridge between two Cosmos zones using IBC. Um, it's what I would refer to as a committee-based bridge where you have to kind of put your trust in the committee, which might be the validators of that chain or operators of a bridge like, like Wormhole Bridge uh, to effectively attest to the state of that chain and to make sure that only the correct, only, only blocks that have valid transactions are relayed across the chains and therefore your funds, in order for your funds not to be st stolen, you have to kind of trust this committee. Zaki, care to comment? Um, all I would say is I do think that there is a big difference between, um, so th there's, there's one thing that matters, which is, um, is there a plausible way in which like, there's like one sort of subtle difference, um, between various kinds of committee based chains. And one is the question is, do you have to do business development with the committee, uh, in order to interact with the blockchain? Um, and if you look at like committee-based blockchains that are like um, uh, th that, you know, that are not IBC, like the wormholes of the world, you know, you have to go to a bunch of meetings and like convince a bunch of validators um, to and like to to uh, to connect to your chain. Um, if you want to join the uh, the wormhole network, for instance, or uh, you know any any of the any of these like enormous number of other uh, committee-based bridges. Um, right now, we live in a world where there's, if where like the ratio of like there's an extremely large number of bridge projects, of committee-based bridge projects, and uh, a relatively small number of blockchains. So, like for any given blockchain, someone will probably be willing to bridge you. Um, but that stops making sense as the number of blockchains starts to grow. Um, and IBC is very special in the way that it does not require business development um, with the committee or the validator set um, uh, in order for two blockchains that speak IBC to co uh, connect with each other. And I think that's like one of the more uh, important properties of IBC. And, and one thing I would add to that is like, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not inherently against committee-based um, you know, bridging. Like, I think we need both. Um, and I actually like there's there's a potential world where um, like rollups themselves, like you might deploy a like a sovereign native rollup on Celestia that itself has a committee based bridge operated by like a, a bridge provider to other chains. 
And if you think about it, that's like that's basically what Ethereum is. Um, if you kind of like you know turn it upside down, turn your view upside down, in a sense like if if, if you look at the view of, of Ethereum uh, from Polygon, like to Polygon, Ethereum is technically just a wormhole type bridge for all the rollups on Ethereum. Um, like it's a very secure wormhole type bridge because obviously it's secured by the entire Ethereum validator set, uh, but it's still a committee based bridge. Um, so like, there's definitely a potential for like rollups themselves also to, to utilize committee based bridges as well as trust minimized bridges. Uh, because ultimately we will have an ecosystem where there's multiple chains that use a mixture of committee based bridges and trust minimized bridges. Um, as I said before, like to me, the main interesting thing about rollups uh, is the ease of deploying your own chain. Um, without, and that, that can be secure in itself without having to kind of bootstrap your own validator set. Mustafa, to keep you uh, on the mic here, there was a significant amount of inbound on really defining modular. Uh, it's a nascent space. There's tons of talk about it. But I know you have some strong opinions here. Can you build on top of sort of your modular thesis? How do you define this budding world? Uh, well, I guess like different people define it differently. Um, I like, originally used the word modular blockchain in, in a blog post in 2019 to introduce Lazy Ledger uh, to mean the separation of consensus and data, uh, sorry, separation of consensus and execution uh, in a blockchain. Um, like different projects have used it in, in different ways. And so that's why I think there's some confusion there. Um, like, for example, Ava has used it to mean um, like modularizing the software stack itself. Um, in, in the sense, like, like you have like the software stack itself might, like, might, be, might be modular. Uh, like, Tendermint itself is actually modular uh, from a software perspective. Uh, because it separates the state machine and the consensus. Like you can plug in your own state, you can plug in like your own like you know, state machine using you know ABCI to Tendermint, and that's basically how how you know, Cosmos SDK and Tendermint interact with each other. But in the context of like um, you know, crypto Twitter, uh, modular blockchain generally means separating you know, consensus and execution, and that's effectively how rollups work, uh, because. They do off, they they do execution off chain, but post data on chain. I think we have a question here. We'll add this guy as a speaker. While he's connecting, we'll actually have welcome. Uh, care to ask your question? Okay. Looks like he's not. There. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yes. We um, can. Thank you. So, uh, I I've been following on and I'm really impressed with everything. I just had a question. So Mustafa said, um, Polkadot basically can scale to a hundred chains, and he didn't really speak on um the power threads that they have where you can pay block by block. So I was wondering if you could just speak on that and to see the difference between um, Celestia and Polkadot in that variance, in the sense that even though you have 100 chains with the power threads, you can scale even multiple and further than the 100. 
So is this like a new thing they've added to their roadmap where you can pay, like instead of paying for execution slots on a per chain exactly. basis, There's you can pay as you go model. Yeah. So yeah. I think that is interesting, uh, but it's still fundamentally different because okay. um, you're paying for execution. Like you're paying, like when you're paying, even if you're paying per block on a block that side model, uh, you're paying the relay chain to verify the execution of your chain. Uh, yeah. Or take, or at, least at minimum, take an interest in the validity of, of execution in your chain. Uh, in the Celestia model, you're only paying the Celestia main chain to make for data availability, uh, but not execution. Uh, so, like, you're not bottlenecked by execution, effectively, because you're using because the main chain does not have to execute your stuff uh, because your because your chain uses fraud proofs or zk proofs to prove the verific- to, to prove the execution to other people. So thank you very much. Okay, wait, 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 let me try and explain it in uh, in sort of Mustafa's framework, which is Polkadot is a system in which there is a built-in bridge, and the bridge assumes the validity of the state transition fun- uh, that, like the state transition function, is honestly executed by all uh, 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 like uh, uh, parathreads and parachains. Um, so because of the way in which the built-in bridge works in Polkadot, the Polkadot relay chain has to take an interest in the validity of the state transition function for any chain in which it is executing the state transition because it's it has this other function of being a bridge and that bridge function requires. So you can sort of flip Polkadot over and think of Polkadot as a committee-based bridge in which the committee basically says, okay, for this straight transition that we want to bridge, um, you are going to spin up a validator set and check like some number of blocks, whether or not that number of blocks is one or more, um, which is the parachain model. More is the parachain model, one is the parachain thread, in order for our bridge to function. I, I think sometimes Polkadot almost kind of makes more sense if you think of it primarily as a bridge that has this property um, as being like a very interesting committee-based bridge. Thanks, Aki. We have another person here uh, who'd ask, like to ask a question. Chad, go for it. Yeah, my question is, uh, do you guys think it's possible to have shared security amongst uh, uh, non-instant finality chains? Or do you think shared security can only occur amongst instant finality? I think it's actually could answer that better, but I don't see I don't see any inherent reason why you can't have shared security against delayed finality chains. Like it will just like you just have you just have to yeah. Yeah, I mean you get into these like there is this there is this weird coupling that you start to see in roll-up-centric Ethereum, where you're like, okay, like, I push my, like, I publish my, um, uh, my, uh, 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 I publish my, like, zero-knowledge proof to a chain, then it's going to take 15 minutes to finalize, um, where, like, the zero-knowledge proof chain is sort of waiting for its own state transition function to be finalized 
Um, and you get these like weird couplings between the bridges that happen in these like non-instant finality environments. Um, you know, I, I think that there are, there's like the design space of everything you can do in like low latency bridging environments in non-instant finality change is not fully explored. I have some ideas that have not uh, actually like I haven't really written about yet. Um, but I, you know, there is, um, there is that the other thing, the other question is whether or not the roll up itself could be non-instant finality. Um, and I think in the Celestia model, like it's very easy for you to imagine a roll up that is not, uh, instant finality, um, where there are multiple parties that have the authority to extend the chain. Um, and there is some fork choice rule. Uh, I know that like Mustafa and I have like talked about this in the past and in previous co private conversations. Thanks for your question, Chad. Uh, I'm going to call out some folks here uh, who I think should be asking some questions. Eric Wall, Ali Atia, Cody Daddy. Uh, don't be shy. Jump in uh, while you guys do. Um, we did get a specific question around Celestia. Um, how does Celestia empower light clients? Mustafa, please. Uh, so like Celestia is built from the ground up with light clients in mind. Um, like if it wasn't designed with light clients in mind, then we would have like released mainnet maybe a year ago. Um, but it might seem insignificant, but when you actually think about it, uh, like light clients is effectively have like core to, you know, you know, blockchain scalability. Um, like because scalability is defined so blockchain scalability is defined as equal to the throughput of your chain divided by the cost for end users to validate that chain and, and that's the fundamental reason why you know ethereum doesn't just want to increase you know, the, the, the gas size limit uh, and the fund, fundamental reason why like Kind of Solana's you know, strategy is, is somewhat controversial because there's very high kind of resource requirements to run a node there, um, but no one can actually validate the chain, you know, using a laptop, for example. So, like, how can you actually be sure? Like, like from your from the user perspective, like, it's not different to you know a, a Web two database because you can't actually verify the chain. And the most important aspect of Web three, uh, one of the most important is that you don't have to rely on you know trusted third parties or middlemen um kind of for the for the state validity of your application. Um so it's like it's very easy to scale a chain if you don't care about you know end user validity. Like you know you just fork Bitcoin or Ethereum and increase the gas size limit. You know, job done. Um but you know the whole ro like roll-ups are kind of a more long-term approach because roll-ups try to check you know scale chains um using fraud and ZK proofs, which allow end users to, which doesn't increase execution requirements of that chain. So in Celestia, um, what we've done is that it's kind of two components to like clients. Um, we've implemented data availability sampling like clients, uh, which means that uh, like any user could verify the entire data availability of the entire Celestia chain without having to download the entire chain. Uh, instead, they only have to download a very small piece of every block. And with that, they can actually get assurances that are almost equivalent to running a validator node or a full node.
we have Diesel Fight here, ready to ask a question. Uh, go for it, man. Hey, thanks for bringing me on. Um, I just wanted to ask Mustafa a little bit about the difference between like Optimate and uh, Sevmos Celestian using Evmos as the execution layer, and also like what the final product would look like for someone trying to start their own DAO or chain without uh, bootstrapping a validator set. Yeah, so Sevmos is like one of the first products that is being built on top of Celestia. And uh, Sevmos, in a nutshell, uh, is basically like a settlement chain for, for EVM-based rollups. Um, so what so what that does that mean? Um, like that basically means instead of deploying you know, your EVM chain on top of Ethereum, you could deploy it on this other settlement layer called Sevmos. And the reason why you would do that is because we're designing Sevmos from the ground up uh, in such a way that the resources would be priced and the chain would be structured such that you know, rollups are first-class citizens in the sense that we, we, want, we want to discourage people from deploying smart contracts or applications directly on the settlement layer, but pushing them to rollups, um, which do off-chain execution. I think that's that's really important because um, Ethereum has has this kind of like first of all chicken and egg problem, um, where like on the grand scale of things, rollups using a rollup on Ethereum does not save you that much fees. Uh, like I mean, it maybe saves you like you know seventy five percent of the fee if you use optimistic rollup, because call data is still so expensive. But for most people, that's not really compelling reason to use a rollup unless they truly care about uh, you know shared security. When they can just you know get one cent transactions you know on on Polygon or you know Avalanche C chain. Um, so and you know like you know significant chunk of these is Ethereum are just you know like uh, well resourced like you know whales or you know people that have a lot of ETH that are, don't mind paying fifty dollars transaction fees. Um, so I think there's some value in creating a chain that's optimized solely for rollups. Um, not just like arbitrarily, but also in terms of resource pricing. Um, what we, like one thing that we're looking at is you know, making the making making the cost to write on read state um, too expensive for people to deploy smart contracts directly on the settlement layer, so that they will be forced uh, to use rollups. Um, so effectively, this you know encourage you know strongly financially incentivize people with these rollups. And this is something. This is kind of something that the you know, guest team is actually trying to avoid, and uh, like they're trying to do the opposite of this. Uh, if you look at EIP, I forgot what it's called, but it was the EIP where you know the cost. They were supposing the call data costs to be reduced. Like the guest team, the guest team main concern about this was actually um, that it favors rollups too much, and that it would make you know normal applications too expensive that are not using rollups. So we'll be concluding shortly here. So if anyone has any final questions, please raise your hand. Uh, Zaki, we did get a question for you, somewhat of a more on the personal side of things. When and how did Zaki realize that data availability is a fundamental part of the blockchain scalability? So I think one of the people I remember talking most um, compellingly about data availability a long time ago is Joseph Kuhn uh, from like the original lightning paper and handshake um, and talking about like how the data availability incentives work in um, 
in Bitcoin, why data availability is sort of a little bit of the, is like sort of the fundamental problem. I think the other thing that like was, is just like, when you try to work through committee rotations in a sharded blockchain, like, and you're like, okay, like, how will this committee rotation fail? Um, and you fun, and you typically run into this problem of, hey, the the way the committee rotation will, like, you know, the the um, you know, sharded blockchains are all well and good until a committee rotation fails, um, and then there's like, basically, what happens is you get like one of the shards is not live, um, and then how do you ever recover? Um, it's kind of an interesting is is sort of the 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 root problem to trying to figure out um, how a sharded blockchain, um, can be secure. Um, and all of those things sort of kept landing me back at data availability problems, um, and sort of, um, you know, looking in the world for, um, solutions and, you know, that, uh, that caused me to pay attention to what Mustafa was working on. Helpful. Uh, there's, there's an, actually, there's another problem that is in, um, that is sort of related to data availability that I have a lot of experience with, which, which is why is there a 21 day unbonding period um, on the Cosmos SDK? Um, the sort of default Cosmos uh, unbonding period comes from this like notion of wanting to make sure that there is, that there's enough time for data on um, consensus attacks um, against the IBC white clients um, to become available. Um, and if we had some sort of, magical data availability solution, uh, of which I've been interested in several different flavors of, um, you could, you know, you could substantially reduce that unbonding period. Thank you, Zaki. Um, we are getting this on Twitter. Mustafa, when you mentioned sovereign uh, roll-ups or sovereign communities, uh, can you please expand on that and tell us more about your vision as it relates to that term? Um, yeah, so the way I see it, and this is kind of echoing something like Ethan uh, Buckman said, which is that, you know, the, the, the invention of personal computing um, allowed individuals to be sovereign, uh, sorry, yeah, individuals to be sovereign. Um, but the, the, the invention of, you know, blockchains allowed communities to be sovereign. Um, in the sense that for the first time, you can actually have like a shared community space where you can have you know a group of shared people can kind of can get together and organize and uh, like independently of the status quo in the sense that you can have a you know a, a, a community you know with and with 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 self agreed rules that are completely voluntary that are enforced without you know requiring a third party like a court system or the police to enforce those rules and you know this 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 only works in a limited kind of setting specifically with resource allocation in a financial setting but i think that's that's very powerful um and it's in particular because it allows uh, kind of like it's it's very you know internet native in the sense that it allows anyone with an internet connection to join a movement or a community and decide how resources within that community is allocated. Um, but at the moment, that's just currently done using DAOs and smart contracts. Um, but I think it would be very powerful if you could actually create like, 
your own chain, uh, like community could create its own chain that is not that does not necessarily derive its authority from some higher chain. Um, like in the sense, like if you deploy a three of DAO or rollup, um, that your chain is bound by the social consensus of the Ethereum community. Uh, yeah, but maybe not necessarily. Like maybe you want to diverge from the Ethereum community. And you don't necessarily agree, you know, on 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 the politics of the Ethereum community. Um, so like you don't really have many options to have your own effectively state machine with rules. Um, unless you just create your own chain with a weak validator set, which isn't great. Uh, but Celestia actually allows you to create what's called sovereign rollups, um, so that you can create a rollup that does not settle to any other chain. Like it does not like for example, like Ethereum rollups are effectively baby chains to Ethereum. Um, like they're kind of like they derive their authority from the Ethereum main chain. Uh, but like similar to how you have a you have a GitHub fork that's connected to like the master, you know, you know, master Git repo. Like, but what if you actually disconnect that link? What if you connect, you know, like in GitHub, like in a GitHub, you can like disconnect that from from, from, the, from the network. Um, and so that's like with a sovereign rollup, you can actually have like a rollup that does not necessarily post or like have like have an enshrined bridge to some other master chain. That so you can have a completely independent chain, independent rollup, um, and you can hard fork that rollup at your own will. But the community can hard fork that its its, its rollup. You know, it's in its own, uh, in, if it decides to, without having to ask for permission from the chain that has it enshrined the bridge with. I think Perfect. that's, that, yeah. yeah. Okay, so we're at time here. Zaki, we'd like to thank you for just, you know, taking the 90 minutes here to, to be with us. Any parting words for us before we go? Um, I mean, I think that this is where, I think, uh, Rollups, data availability, the modular blockchain hypothesis is just like one of the most is kind of it's been a very exciting thing. It's kind of time is is now. I think that there's like a this is this is kind of the the moment where it kind of all starts to come together. And so it was very exciting to be here with you guys. Thank you, Mustafa. Any parting words for us? Yeah, likewise. Very exciting times. And um, if you want, if you're interested in learning more about Celestia, then go to celestia.org. And there's various resources there that you can learn more about. We're also we're also building out um, like a, a section of the website um, for to allow people to learn about modular blocks in general. That should be hopefully kind of coming this year. There you have it. If you want to learn more about modular, go to celestia.org. Everyone, thank you so much, Zaki. Thank you, Mustafa. Thank you. We'll see you guys offline.